So about a month ago, I think it was, back in January, um, I preached a message out of the first part of Mark chapter 8. You've probably forgotten all about it. But it was about uh, the feeding of the 4,000, and then about the disciples and the discussion on the boat about that one loaf of bread. Well, today I thought we'd pick up kind of where we left off a few verses later in Mark chapter 8 again. It's a passage that starts with, uh, his disi- with Jesus asking his disciples, uh, who do men say that I am? And then it goes into this discussion about what it means to be an apostle, uh, I mean a disciple of Christ. It's a familiar passage. It's, um, it's, it's a moving passage. It's made me do some soul searching as I've studied it. What does it mean to follow Jesus? And does my definition of discipleship, does that match Jesus' definition of discipleship? I think that's a pretty, pretty important question for us to think about from time to time. Just a little background on, on what's happening here. Just a few verses before, uh, they, they came up to Bethsaida, and in Bethsaida he healed the blind man in two steps. Kind of an unusual miracle there. I'm kind of skipping over that. And then in verse 27, they start on the way from Bethsaida up to, Ces- to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is not to be confused with the other Caesarea that is on the coast. That one was built by Herod the Great. This one was built by Herod's son, Philip. And this, this city is about directly north of Bethsaida. So the disciples are traveling straight north and it's probably 15 to 20 miles. I don't know if they, they covered this distance all at once or not. So that's just a little background on this trip and the discussion that starts on the trip. I'll start reading at verse 27. We'll read down to verse 38. This, this passage is also, uh, this account is also recorded over in Matthew chapter 16. So once again, I'll be referencing Matthew chapter 16 a bit. Starting verse 27, I'm reading from New American Standard. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And he summoned the crowd of his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? 
For whosoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now my main focus as we study this passage is going to be on what it means to follow Jesus. That's verses 34 through 38. But what leads into that discussion is this this other discussion about who Jesus is and what his mission is, really. And I want to look at those verses first. Jesus starts by asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? Over in Matthew 16, which also records this incident, he asks the question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? The title Son of Man uh, occurs twice in this passage here in Mark. The first time it's in verse 31 where he talks about suffering. The second time is in verse 38 where he talks about coming back in glory. Why did Jesus use that title? If you'll let me go on a little bit of a rabbit trail. It's not much of a rabbit trail and it shouldn't take long, but it's an odd title if you think about it. Son of Man. If you're actually the Son of God and you want people to know that, then Son of Man is is kind of an odd title because pretty much any man can say that about himself, couldn't he? In fact, technically, Jesus was not the Son of a man. What was Jesus doing by using that title instead of just saying Son of God? Well, the the sources I've I've studied name three reasons. None of these are original with me, but... Um, I believe they're accurate. First of all, he's emphasizing his humanity. He is human. He is not an angel or something. He's also avoiding using a title that would trigger the Jews into rebellion and try to make him a king. But thirdly, and most interestingly, it's a title that actually is referencing a prophecy in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, that talks about one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And there's a couple of times that Jesus specifically uses the title Son of Man in a way that is very much lines up with that prophecy. Well, verse 38, for example, already makes you think of that that prophecy. But when Jesus was um, on that trial facing the, the high priest, and the high priest basically put him under oath and said, you know, are you the Christ, the Son of the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. In fact, in my Bible, it's actually in caps because it's so close to being a direct quote of of Daniel 7, verse 13. And then the other time was when Jesus talking about his second coming. He's talking to the disciples, and he says that you'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. So this image of of Jesus returning in glory and power is is wrapped up in this title, Son of Man. So it's a, to the Jew who is paying attention and has an open heart and is familiar with the prophecy in Daniel, they could start making the connection. This, This is that Son of Man that he's talking about. This is how he's using the title. It's, it's a special title that suits his needs perfectly. Now, back to the question, who do people say that I am? I'm not sure exactly why Jesus asked the disciples, you know, what people are saying. 
why he started that way. It may have just been his way of opening up the topic. They respond with this list of, of various um, ideas, uh, Elijah, John the Baptist. I think Herod maybe originated that theory. Um, over in Matthew, it says Jeremiah, one of the prophets. These were all dead people. Notice they're all dead. So did the people think that it was, was it somehow easier for them to believe that Jesus had come back from the dead and was somebody reincarnated than it was for them to believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Apparently. It's, it's just curious um, how people can spin theories to avoid the truth. Jesus doesn't comment on their answers. He goes on and asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter being Peter, we're not surprised that he opens his mouth first. He says, you are the Christ. In Matthew, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now that's kind of significant. We don't, because we don't know for sure, but there is some evidence to support the theory that the Jews in general didn't necessarily think the Messiah would be the Son of God. And if that was the case, then it would be extra um, important that Peter identifies him as not only the Christ, but the Son of God. So Peter is shining here. This is his shining moment, briefly, in spite of his failings. He nailed it. And Jesus praises him for his answer. Again, over in Matthew, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. When we recognize in our hearts that Christ is the Son of God, then we're blessed too. So who's the Son of Man? He's the Messiah. He's the Christ, the Anointed One. He's the Son of God, and He is going to return someday glorified. At some point, we are going to have to stand before him, I believe, and, and he may say something like, well done, thou good and faithful servant. He may say something like, um, or maybe he will, he will deny you, say, depart, depart from me, I never knew you. Um, someday we're going to have to give an account. What's his mission? Let's look at verses 31 through 33 now. Jesus tells them plainly that he must suffer many things, be rejected by the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. So here Jesus tells them the plan. Now, I can read these verses and not really be affected by them because I'm very, you know, familiar with the story, and we are all familiar with the story. From the, from the moment Jesus is born, we know that this is the plan. So it's maybe hard for us to understand what a blow this must have been to the disciples, because this is the first time he said it plainly like this. He ends up telling them three times, this is the first. They're still thinking earthly kingdom. At this point, their outlook is pretty bright. They believe that this man, Jesus, has in him what it takes to, to be the king of Israel and the right. They've been with Jesus for two years now. They've seen him feed the multitudes, cast out the demons, walk on water, still the storm, all those things. They know that, that he, is a, he is a powerful man. He has God's power on him. And they can envision you know, Rome not knowing what's 
hit them. And Jesus setting up an earthly kingdom in Jerusalem. And maybe disciples get to be members of the cabinet. They've sacrificed a lot to get to this point. And they, but they think it's, it's probably going to be worth it. And they're right about that too. But not, it's not going to turn out how they expect. And you can imagine their shock. It's not just about them losing their leader. It's also if, if Jesus is going to suffer and, and die, what's going to happen to them? And I, I feel sorry for them because we haven't even got to verse 34 yet. It really lays it down. They're not going to, um, verse 34, probably does not make them feel any more cheerful. So the fact that the disciples just don't abandon him at this point uh, really raises my respect for them. They, they stuck with him. Peter's not happy with the plan. He, he takes Jesus aside and essentially says, you know, I can sense a lot of negativity coming from you, Jesus, a lot of negative energy. You need to be careful or we're all going to be depressed. Don't let these, these Pharisees and, and scribes and your opponents, don't let them get you down. This is not going to happen to you. Don't worry. Be happy. This will never be. I had to think of the time when, when uh, Jesus wanted to wash Peter's feet. And Peter said, not going to happen. But he, he changed his mind he, when he realized how much he needed his feet to be washed. And in the same way, he needed Jesus to die on the cross. Jesus rebukes Peter very severely here. Get behind me, Satan. Now, Peter was not demon-possessed, but it does look like Satan was using Peter kind of as a mouthpiece. Over in the Matthew account, uh, he's, Jesus says, get behind me, you're a stumbling block to me. It's kind of good for... You know, G, Peter had just been referenced in, in connection with a different kind of rock, and uh, very quickly went from that to being a stumbling block. Now, uh, one, one very, this is not a question we can really answer here this morning, but just, just, just an interesting tidbit. If, if Satan really was speaking through Peter here, does that mean that Satan was starting to catch on as to what the plan was, that he would be opposed to it? That's interesting to think about. Now, a couple of things we need to notice about Jesus' example here, and, and, and we must learn from. There are times when, as Christians, we're going to know what God's interests are, and we're going to know which direction really would be best for us to go. And Satan is going to come to us in a similar way and say, you don't have to be so extreme. Don't be so hard on yourself. It's not necessary. But Jesus was so focused on the, on, the, on the goal, he just brushed that aside and said, get behind me. And if he had to say it, how much more do we have to say it? Well, what do you think Peter thought of this kind of rebuke? I mean, I'm sure he was stunned. Uh, we, you know, Peter must be thinking, we just both agreed. You're the son of God, right? You're the son of God. Now, how are you kidding me? How is it possible that... Uh, you know, I'm, how is it possible that I don't have God's interests in mind here? You're the son of God. You're talking about being crucified, and I'm, I'm against that. 
Actually, Jesus did not mention crucifixion. Sorry. He just said he was going to die at this point. How is it out of line with God's interest for me to be against that plan? Well, it wasn't God's interest. It was really in Peter's interest. And it is an interest of each of us here this morning that Jesus would follow out this mission. The third time that Jesus um, gave his warning to the, apostles, to the disciples that this was going to happen is in, Ma- in Mark 10, 33. And shortly after that, there's a d- discussion about who's the greatest. And then Jesus says very clearly what the plan is. Again, in verse 45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's what's going on, a ransom. It was at great cost to himself, and it's a mission that he continues to carry out today. How does this mission affect us? Now that Jesus has made it clear where he's headed, he invites his disciples to follow. And we're going to skip past verse 34 now and look at at verse 35 a, a bit, and we'll come back to 34. Jesus, in verse 35, is essentially saying you've got two options. You can either try to save your life or you can intentionally lose it for my sake. And, and there are predetermined outcomes to, the, to these options. There aren't any qualifiers like if you go down this road, in most cases it's going to turn out this way. Or if you go down this other road, in most cases it's going to turn out this way. It's... It's very simple. It's black and white. If you, go, if, this, if you take this approach, this is what's going to happen. If you try to save your temporal life, you will lose it. You will lose your soul. And your soul, of course, is of tremendous value. You know, 75 to, to 90 year lifespan here on earth seems like a long time, especially when you're young. But... You know, if you, if you stick around for a while, that starts to seem pretty short, actually. Not so long. And not long at all in comparison to eternity. So it's, it's a, it would be a horrible exchange to give up eternal life for whatever the world can offer. But by letting go of your soul, uh, I'm sorry, letting go of your life, you will gain your soul, eternal life. It reminds me a little bit of Lot and how he had to abandon that city and just leave it all behind him. And if he, if he didn't do that, if he wasn't willing to just take off and leave that life behind him, he was going to die. Very simple. So for this ransom, this mission that Jesus is doing, for it to go into effect, we must become his disciple. What does it mean to follow the Son of Man? Now we come back to verse 34. Let's break this down a bit. First, we have, to, we have to notice the word anyone and the fact that Jesus summoned the crowd with his disciples. He didn't just call his select few to him and say, you who are, have special assignment, this is for you. Instead, it's the whole crowd. Anyone who wants to come after me, all right, that's the first word we, we need to notice. And then there's the word deny, deny himself. What does that word mean? Now, I often will think of self-denial kind of in the same terms as I will think of self-discipline. They're not really the same thing. If you think about it, uh, a person can exercise a lot of self-discipline and stop eating dessert, for example. But he can do that for fairly self-centered reasons. It's not self-denial, it's just self-discipline. 
There are some very self-disciplined people out there who are very self-centered. Another good word that, that this, the word deny could also be translated into would be the word disown. And I like the word disown because it helps us think about this in kind of a different light. In fact, Young's literal translation uses the word disown here. Now, a couple of different uh, sources that I studied pointed out that a, a great example of denial is Peter. It comes from Peter. He wasn't denying himself, unfortunately. He was denying Christ. And, and what did he say when people asked him about Jesus? He said, I don't know the man. He disowned him. What happens if you would happen to disown a friend? Hopefully that would never happen. But if you would, what would that look like? You would quit caring what that person thought. Um, you would not go out of your way anymore to uh, do nice things for that person. It, that person, it would almost be as though that person doesn't exist anymore. In fact, you've probably heard the expression, you know, so-and-so, he's dead to me. You know, I've heard that expression before, but fortunately just in a joking sort of way. You don't care what he thinks or what he wants anymore. And in the same way, in a similar way, at least, we need to disown ourselves. That doesn't mean we, we hate ourselves, but it means that we don't live our life for that person anymore. That person being us, me. Self-denial means you've rejected yourself as being number one in your life. And what you want on your own is, is no longer what's most important. It's, it's what, what God wants, his interests first. Now, I'm not trying to be dramatic and make this more extreme than it is, but it, the language here is, is pretty extreme language, really. And, and in Paul, Paul over in Galatians 2.20 uses fairly extreme language when he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Disown yourself, deny yourself, and then take up your cross. What does that mean? Crucifixions are, were not unusual in those days, unfortunately. And um, from what I understand, typically the Romans would require the person that was going to be crucified that he would carry uh, at least the, the cross beam, the horizontal section of the cross on his back. And someone who is carrying that section of cross knows a few facts that are kind of morbid. He knows that he's going to suffer and he's going to die. And he's given up. There's no running. There's no hiding. No more fighting. It's over. For a Christian, it, it simply means you are willing to suffer and die for Christ. Take up your cross. And disciples got a very clear picture of the cost when they saw Jesus suffering and dying. And Jesus had said, follow me. Sure, I'm sure they were thinking of that. In Luke 9, uh, verse 23, Jesus makes the same statement, except it has the word daily in it. So it's a daily approach to life. Right now, you know, right now an American cross looks a lot easier than, say, a Syrian cross or some of those other crosses in the Middle East. But uh, we don't get to choose the cross. We simply accept it or we don't accept it. A willingness to pay the ultimate price. 
And then finally, follow me. This could also be translated to attend or accompany. Uh, the Greek word actually has the word road in it. So that might mean to go down the same road or go with him down the road, follow me. There's some implications to this follow me commandment. It means we identify ourselves with him. We're not ashamed of him, like it mentions in verse 38. It means that we pursue his presence. It's being with him is important to us. You follow somebody because you want to be where that person is. That's why we follow Jesus. We pursue his presence. We also want to imitate him. And we conform to him, and, and hopefully we start to resemble him in some small degree, that people can see Jesus in us. We start to pick up his tendencies. And then, and then finally, we respond to his direction. And when he goes that way, we go that way. And we are sensitive to his leading. Follow me. <clears throat> Let's reflect a little bit on the cost. Jesus uh, has no qualms here in expressing the cost of being a disciple. He's not ashamed of it, that it costs a great deal. And I think the reason he was not ashamed of it is because it cost him a great deal. And it really, for us, it is a um, tremendous reward for, what, for the little bit that we have to, to give up for. I was, I was thinking, um, as an example, Recently, we were offered some beef for free. Now, um, a kind person in our church offered us some meat. And there were a few things we needed to do in order to, uh, before that beef would end up in our freezer, which is where beef belongs. There, there were some things like um, taking care of the processing fee, uh, communicating with the Shrocks about how it should be cut up, uh, getting it transported from there to here, which fortunately I got Clayton to do that. Thank you. And uh, some other little, you know, details that needed to be done. Now, just, just a small amount of work. Now, what would happen if I would have grumbled about it? Are you kidding me? You mean I have to go to, to the slaughterhouse and, and pick up this meat? And I have to tell, I don't know anything about how meat's supposed to be cut up. Just make it all hamburger. Um, and I have to pay this processing fee. This is just complicated. It's a mess. I mean, do I have to go to all this work? This is just too much of a bother. You know, what kind of attitude would that have been? It's terrible. Uh, very rude. And, you know, clearly I have no sense of of, um, well, for one thing, the, the labor that went into raising this animal, but also, you know, the, the value that I get in exchange. Not appreciating what's being offered. And I think that's the attitude we are probably all tempted to take to, to some degree when, uh, when, the when the cost of following Jesus looks too big. Now, verse 35 told us there's two options. You can give up your life or try to save it. But there is, there's a third option. It's a false option because it doesn't actually exist. But we'll, 
so many people, I think, want it to exist that we'll talk about it as though it does exist for a minute. The third option is to try to do both. Try to save your temporal life and save your soul at the same time. And I think a lot of people want to do this because the cost looks so great and insurmountable. You know, we're not trying to gain the whole world here, really, but maybe just, you know, a small section, just enough. Uh, I've been reading this book, Secrets of the Kingdom Life, by David Bursow, and he talks about this appeal to be a half-and-half half Christian, and he says, half-and-half half Christians can appreciate the fact that if we are totally absorbed in worldly pleasures, our lives will surely be empty. But they imagine that complete self-denial would make for a dull, miserable, melancholy existence. They realize that an excess of pride makes for a despondent life. However, they imagine that if they fully empty themselves and live in total humility, this would be a wretched life as well. The half-and-half Christians imagines he's getting the best of both worlds, when in reality he's getting neither. We need to be careful not to entertain the half-and-half half approach, and it, I, I'm sure it appeals to me, and I'm sure it appeals to all of us at times. But there are several reasons why we should not give in to it. Um, reason number one is that to the extent to which you embrace it, you may not be a Christian. It seems to me that if a halfway option was viable, that when the, when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus looked on him and loved him. Jesus would have said, you know, you've got a bit of a problem here with wealth, but uh, we're going to take care of that later. Um, you know, make a small donation or something, but we'll deal with that later. If halfway was a viable approach, it seems to me that Jesus could have made some kind of room for this rich young ruler. He didn't. The second reason we don't want to entertain this approach is that it's a lousy way to respond to Christ's sacrifice. Um, uh, we are already are hugely unworthy of it, and to just and we're called to be a living sacrifice ourselves, and then just to put this little kind of piddling offering out there that is not even you know it's half-hearted. That's that's just terrible. It's all just, you know, kind of ceremony and our heart's not into it. That's terrible. And the third reason is that there's a lot of joy that we can experience as being foolhardy Christians that a halfway Christian just does not get, I think. You know, you, you've probably done this before. You've, you've assigned somebody to do a particular job, like your, your child or something, and they go into it, and they just don't want to do it from the beginning to the end. And they're just fighting it the whole way through. And the whole process takes twice as long as it should have. It's painful to everybody involved. And it is just miserable existence. And that can happen to us with any kind of role when we just don't accept it and say, you know what, I'm going to do my job here. And in a similar fashion, I think it is miserable trying to live the Christian life when you don't really want to be a Christian. Jesus said, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Over in Luke 14, talking to the large crowds, specifically talking about the cost to following him. He, said, he summarizes it this way. 
So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. So the cost looks pretty, pretty uh, huge. Is it even possible to, to live this kind of life of sacrifice? Uh, another point that, that David Berceau made in his book is that there's, there's kind of an apparent paradox going on here. And, and on one hand, Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. On the other hand, he says, um, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It seems a bit like a, a paradox. But I think what makes this possible is the yoke can be easy for people who have given in and are following Christ full-heartedly. And, and several reasons for why what makes it easy is the first being the work of the, the unimpeded work of the Holy Spirit and his provision of grace in our lives, I think, makes the yoke easy. I think a growing love for Christ makes the yoke easy. Our, our sacrifice is no longer miserable and hateful. It's something that we maybe can respond to even with joy, like some of the apostles did. Maybe we'll eventually get to the point where we have the same attitude as Paul. You know, those things I had to give up, that was just rubbish. I wasn't giving up anything. And then thirdly, there's that, and I kind of alluded to this earlier, there's, there's a joy and peace that I believe comes from the, the full-hearted following of Christ that is just not experienced by those who ha- are not all the way uh, in. I think the whole world is just a much nicer uh, place if you're walking with a son of man, or it's a more hopeful place to be. It's, it's so good to know that you're headed in the right direction and um, that you're on solid ground and whatever unrest you have about yourself with who you are, you know, you, you can be removed by this surrender to Christ and knowing that you're going in the right direction. It's a joy and peace. So take up your cross Deny yourself, disown yourself, and follow Christ. Does your idea of discipleship, does it match Christ's definition of discipleship? We're all going to stand before the Son of Man someday. Will he deny us? Will he be ashamed of us? Or will he say, well done, thou good and faithful servant? There, there is a cost to being a disciple, but, but um, it is the only way in which we can become ransomed. And the size of that cross, the size of that cost, shrinks as we grow in our love for Christ and appreciate the price of that ransom to the extent that maybe at some point it will stop looking like a sacrifice altogether and it will start looking more like a privilege to pay that cost.